Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Eric Prince, a former Navy SEAL who founded Blackwater in 1997. He served as its CEO until 2009 and its chairman until 2010 when the company was sold. Eric is the author of what I think is a must-read book, which really reads like Homeland at times, Civilian Warriors, the Inside Story of Blackwater, and the Unsung Heroes of the War on Terror. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Eric, so first question, why should Americans read this book, and what drove you to write this book at this time? Well, I, set the, I wrote the book to set the record straight. There had been uh, so many distortions, uh, misperceptions about uh, what the company Blackwater did um, and about private sector contracting in the national security space. Uh, there, there was just so much um, misunderstanding that someone had to re- set the record straight. And so uh, we finally had a chance to do that with this book. Uh, a lot of people have read it, even people very much inclined that had believed all those misperceptions. And they came away uh, quite educated. Uh, I think people will find, uh, I talk, there's an entire chapter that talks about the history of battlefield contracting that literally goes back to the f- founding uh, of the first American colonies to key roles that uh, private sector people, that mercenaries played in, in helping America win independence from England and then um, all laced through American history. So you know, it, it, this is not some new invention of, of contracting uh, assistance on the battlefield or preparing in, for military forces, but it's it is literally as old, it's as old as warfare, and it's certainly uh, interlaced all through American history. Now, there, there's a, a big misperception about the primarily protective activities that Blackwater was involved in. Give readers a sense as to what a modern-day contractor does in the Middle East. Everything, you know, <laughs> massive amount of support services, whether it's fixing aircraft or drones or uh, providing... The camp support services, whether that's food, laundry, fuel supply, um, maintaining weapon systems for the military, when you take a massive, very capable conventional force, that is the U.S. military, that's also very expensive, and you go through your conventional operations and now you have to do counterinsurgency type work, that creates gaps. And if you need more bodyguards or more camp support or more training support or a different kind of aircraft to be operated you can hire that out. And just like if somebody needs a car uh, for a week, they don't buy a car and sit on it the other uh, 51 weeks a year, but instead you rent it. And that way the government can rapidly spool up capability, use it, and then when it doesn't need it anymore, it turns it off and there's no legacy insurance, housing, or retirement costs. And you speak, as you mentioned in the book, about the history of mercenaries and also the evolution of our military. And a little bit also, not only about how the military's activities have shifted over time towards, you know, more nation building than than the past, but there are also certain activities where it's not cost efficient for the government to get involved and the government would rather not get involved. This is sort of reminiscent of the original OSS. You know, there were creative people in our government who did anything they could to get the job done uh, under the law. And it seems like sort of Blackwater and other contractors today sort of fulfill roles that the government itself isn't comfortable or competent enough or doesn't have the resources to do. Speak a little bit to that. Well, sure. Like I said, when you when you go from a massive conventional military operation like the invasion of Iraq or the the uh, the, the nation building effort that was done in Afghanistan, again, 
in World War II, the U.S. military had 14 million people under arms. Now you have only 10% of that number. There's just not enough uniform forces to do every job imaginable. And so just like if you're building a major construction project, you have a prime contractor and you might have subs that can bring in specialty skills to do the plumbing or the wiring or site work, et cetera. The same way the, the, the private contractors can provide that kind of specialty support to the U.S. government uh, as they're uh, accomplishing their tasks. And I think there's this notion that you dispel in this book about Blackwater engaging in offensive activities on behalf of the government and the federal government and sort of blurring the line between being merely a protective civilian force and actually being sort of another arm of the government in effect. Correct. In Iraq and Afghanistan, there was, to my knowledge, there was Blackwater and nor any other contractors were not conducting offensive combat operations. Okay. In, uh, in, in both of those theaters, Iraq, uh, Blackwater provided diplomatic security. So you protect people, you play defense, you move people from one point to the other safely. We provided a lot of uh, aviation logistics support. We delivered a lot of supplies by parachute, by helicopter, by aircraft. Um, and we provide a lot of training support. So build a base, train thousands and thousands of locals uh, to do the border police job, to be narcotics police or whatever the mission might be. Um, again, those are, those are support and uh, or, or defensive type roles, not uh, going on raids, accompanying um, U.S. forces. In your view, what are the biggest myths about Blackwater? Uh, that we were out of control, overpriced, uh, you know, and non-professional. The idea, you know, we had very clear rules of engagement, very clear um, dictates as to what kind of people we would hire. We hired uh, U.S. military veterans uh, or law enforcement personnel that had significant experience operating in difficult, dangerous places. They were put through psychological evaluations and criminal background checks and, and uh, weeks and weeks of additional training uh, and then sent over and put under the operational control of the U.S. government, be it the DOD or the Department of State. Um, you know, 97, 98% of our revenue was competitively bid. In that case, the government puts out a, a large bid document that says we need uh, X amount of this and this. And just like any any other competitor, you put a bid, and uh, and then we have to live with what our bid price is. Most of it was firm fixed price. So if things uh, got worse or went bad or became more dangerous, those are the risks that we had to absorb as that contractor. One of the things that I found interesting in the book was State Department's activities in Iraq seem particularly infuriating to my mind, where you describe how instead of maintaining a low profile, the State Department explicitly wanted it to be known that their presence was there, uh, make a big show of, you know, important diplomats who were traveling through the country that they were there, which creates obviously huge targets and a very dangerous situation for those trying to protect them. And I think about this in, in context of the Benghazi report as well and what your folks were able to do, for example, in engaging the Mahdi army uh, in Iraq. In your view, does the political correctness and the sort of optics efforts of our federal government and particularly parts of it like the State Department end up endangering Americans and our diplomats? Absolutely. I mean, political correctness is a very, very dangerous um, uh, negative attribute on the battlefield. Like I can talk about in the book, as we were providing protective operations, if it was for an NGO where we got 
total control over how the mission was done. We would use a low-profile vehicle that might look like a beat-up taxi. It was armored, but looking very, uh, very indigenous. Uh, and, and the idea is to make it hard for the enemy to, uh, to find you. They, they can't attack what they can't see. Um, but when the government dictates the vehicle you'll drive, lights and sirens, in a very obvious manner, it makes it um, mighty tough uh, to, to, to be lucky every day when, when the enemy knows you're coming. Uh, in the same way, you know, we asked for cameras. Uh, we asked for dashboard cameras, just like a police cruiser would have, which protect the public, which protect the operator, and it serves as that neutral third-party observer to prevent the he said, she said kind of scenarios uh, that even America is dealing with now in, uh, in its dealings with law enforcement. In your view, and again, there are a lot of things that you can walk away from with this book, and you are obviously an operational person overseeing an enterprise whose job was largely to protect American government officials. In your view, what are the right takeaways from the war in Iraq? Is it that debathification was a tremendous folly on the part of policymakers? Is it that nation building in the Middle East does not work, period? What's, what's your view? Um, I think the particular uh, key node where failure occurred was the decision to pull U.S. troops out of Iraq. And it really let Maliki, who is an Iranian stooge, um, run roughshod over the rest of the Sunnis. He fired the competent Sunni officers out of the military. He abused them. And a lot of the Sunni tribes, having been so abused, first by Saddam, then by Maliki, I think they a lot of them let ISIS uh, roll over their area because they've, you know, They'd been they'd been so abused. They were, they were looking for a different option. Um, as pathetic as that is, literally the Obama administration snatched defeat uh, from the jaws of victory um, by pulling the troops out too quickly, letting uh, the the very sectarian Maliki government run roughshod over the rest of its people. And where do you see Iraq going from here? Obviously, you have ISIS in Iraq and in Syria. It seems like a situation where there are basically no good outcomes. Bashar Assad, obviously, in Syria is not a sympathetic figure. At the same time, the alternatives don't look very compelling either. At the same time, you know, Assad is an ally of Iran. As you note in the book, and you sort of just hinted at, uh, Iran has tremendous influence over Iraq as well. What do you see happening in this area of the world, and what should Americans be doing? Because... You see these sort of half-hearted efforts to carry out airstrikes against ISIS. You've talked about the fact that a force like Blackwater could go in there and handle it pretty quickly. Uh, And then we also see arming of folks on the ground and the track record of America arming folks on the ground in the Middle East uh, is pretty dubious with the exception of kicking the Russians, the Soviets out of Afghanistan. And obviously those guns were later turned on us. Where do you see things going in this Middle East? Look, ISIS is growing in capability. Uh, their manpower is now roughly 40,000 in Iraq and another 40,000 or so in Syria. Their numbers are going up, not down. Um, you know, the president's talked about crushing them, degrading them, all the rest. I think it's very important for the U.S. to not have half measures because if the United States says, yeah, we're going to crush ISIS, and then they don't, ISIS wins solely by surviving. And if they have sanctuary, I mean, they've grand claims for a caliphate to dominate the entire Middle East. Um, That certainly includes a number of the neighbors of Iraq. Uh, It makes for a very, very dangerous uh, scenario. And they're certainly looking to export terror. I mean, the 
the, the pr- provocation done by, by beheading Americans on camera, uh, that, is, you know, that is straight out from, from the medieval days of, of picking a fight. And the U.S. has not really responded um, yet like, uh, like they can. Um, but I, I, the idea of, of private capability being, um, you know, largely using uh, Iraqi personnel that would lean and train and fight with them side by side with a very small footprint capability would give the, um, would give the, the United States the ability to uh, severely degrade ISIS without having to have a massive deployment of more active duty uh, soldiers. Because the U.S. deploys with a very large footprint, a very large logistics tail. You know, it's typically uh, 12 to 1, 12 tail per one tooth. And uh, that makes for a very expensive um, and a very um, kind of ponderous operation. Contextualize for Americans the threat that ISIS poses to the U.S. and its interests abroad versus, say, Iran, because I find it interesting you talk about the beheadings and that's clearly, you know, the most gruesome thing that a person can see and, and it instills terror in, in some, in, in probably everyone to some degree. Um, but Iran is the leading state sponsor of terrorism throughout the world and I find it interesting that that's, it's sort of on the back burner, our nuclear negotiations with Iran and the media and ISIS is the sole focus. Who poses a bigger threat and what threat does ISIS pose to us? ISIS, ISIS poses a... Um a near-term threat, but certainly the greatest threat long-term are our crazies with a nuclear weapon in Iran. That is by far the most stabilizing, destabilizing uh, possibility in the Middle East. So they're both, uh, they're both grave threats to uh, any kind of normalcy and civilization. And does the military establishment basically fall in line whatever the, with whatever the Obama administration is promulgating with respect to our stance towards Iran? Or do you believe that there are voices of dissension and high levels of the government urging us to back away from easing sanctions and otherwise coddling the Iranian leadership? I, I don't really know what the, um, what the paradigm is at the, uh, at the flag officer level there. Uh, I, I, I think it's highly concerning that the Obama administration is talking about making a nuclear deal that wouldn't even be subject to, uh, to Senate approval, like any other treaty would be. So, I mean, it, 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 we have a constitution, we have a division of powers of the U.S. government. <laughs> that is beyond ISIS or beyond Iran. Uh, if we start destroying the constitutional foundations of America, that clearly is the greatest threat to American um, uh, survivability. Well, that, that's well said, and at least we did have a separation of powers uh, until the last executive order. Uh, yeah, it, we're, we're, we're going in uncharted waters here. Very, very dangerous waters. I wanted to ask your opinion. I'm sure that you read the lengthy New York Times report on WMDs in Iraq and the fact that numerous soldiers and other officials were exposed to WMDs, many of them which were likely legacy WMDs. Uh, What's your take on that whole report? Why do you think it was released? And did Blackwater have any experience with WMDs in Iraq? Um, I, you know, early on, we provided some security for people that were looking for WMDs. And I can tell you firsthand from our guys' observations that it was a very disjointed, disorganized, and half-baked attempt to find WMDs. Uh, They're rotating people through every 60 days, so there was not 
really lacking in continuity for people on the ground that would go and look. I firmly believe there are some, some significant WMD sites in Iraq yet. Uh, when, when those parts are, are stabilized, uh, it's definitely worth going back and looking in some of those areas. I wanted to ask your opinion. I don't know if you had a chance to read or even at least gloss over the House Intelligence Committee Select Panel Benghazi report. I poured over the documents, and the takeaway for me was that basically the CIA tried to, and the intelligence community more broadly, was basically absolved from any failure with respect to Benghazi, and the, the blame was pretty much squarely placed on the State Department and potentially even the executive branch uh, based on the majority comments appended to the report. What is your takeaway on the Benghazi report and, and that situation, more the tragedy more broadly? I haven't read the report, but I do know that the, the guards uh, like Chris Peranto that uh, wrote that book and you know said they were held back from, uh, from moving to the sound of the gunfire, from responding sooner. Uh, I believe Chris Peranto and those guys far more than I believe the CIA's bureaucracy. You, you've been very generous with your time, and I just want to ask two more real brief questions. First one is, you know, in the title of your book, you say Heroes of the War on Terror. Some have said that you're, you can't really fight a war on terror when terror is a tactic. On your view, who is our enemy? Is our enemy a tactic, or is there an explicit enemy with a name and a face? Uh, I would say it's uh, it's a radical Islamic extremism that seeks to force uh, force its beliefs on um, anyone it encounters. So those would be uh, radical ISIS folks or Taliban or Al Qaeda um, that are that are you know committing unbelievable acts of atrocities um, in its area it's conquered. Um, and they wish to extend that to anyone that, uh, that comes from Western civilization. And is there any way, in your view, in the long run, because this is likely going to be a decades-long battle, which I feel sometimes Americans don't necessarily appreciate, given the speed of the news cycle, is there any way to defeat them besides showing them such strong force and making the cost so great of their actions that they have to cease their activities? Uh, look, there's, I, I, you know, when you think about negotiating with ISIS, there is no negotiating with them. They have an absolutist, extremist, of the most extreme ideology, and the only way to defeat them is to crush them, is to annihilate them, is to literally prevent them from breathing. Last question. You write in, later in your book, quote, the United States has effectively priced itself out of the next war. Explain that to our readers, and where do you see America going in the future in terms of using contractors to supplement our conventional forces? As I, as I talk about in the book, uh, the private sector has been there for a long time. The U.S. military has mastered the most expensive way to wage war when their per head cost of a U.S. uniformed soldier in Afghanistan this last year was over $2.2 million per person. That's a staggeringly high, unsustainable number. The problem with throwing a lot of cash at a monopoly is it causes all kinds of bad habits, some very inefficient habits. And so the private sector operating around the periphery on a truly competitive basis can start to drive some of those support costs, some of those deployment costs back down to a reasonable number. Because as you just said, this war against an extremist ideology is not something that's done in one year 
or three years or the next election cycle. This is a long fight. And so you have to make sure they don't win by a war of attrition by bleeding us dry because we've spent ourselves into bankruptcy. We need to be lean and smart and cheap and innovative and not just try to crush them with a massive spend, spending ourselves into oblivion. The name of the book is Civilian Warriors, the inside story of Blackwater and the unsung heroes of the war on terror. The author is Eric Prince. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.